Hi there, welcome to the Soil and Roots podcast, digging beneath the surface to uncover the hidden ideas that form us, the church, and our culture. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 42, One of These Things is Not Like the Other. Here on Soil and Roots, we explore the journey of discipleship from some different angles. We explore our spiritual formation from the concept of ideas, assumptions and conclusions and principles that form our hearts, but of which we're typically not even conscious. Though we're powered and governed by ideas, we rarely pause to identify and dig into them. Now, ideas have great impact on us personally, but they also govern entire nations. Ideas are one of the most powerful things on earth. There are two sets of ideas, those from the kingdom of light and those from the domain of darkness. God's ideas lead to our blessing and flourishing. Ideas of darkness are designed to kill us. And the human heart, which we also refer to here as our roots, are planted in soil of ideas. Our soils have both ideas of light and ideas of darkness in them. So a disciple in one sense is someone whose ideas of darkness are being transformed into ideas of light over time. But sometimes even good ideas, ideas of light, may be forgotten or reduced or even corrupted. So we've looked at the idea of the gospel, and we've explored how we've forgotten or lost the majestic gospel of the kingdom and reduced it to a very personal, very individualistic gospel of justification. The fact that we've lost or reduced the gospel of the kingdom over the past few hundred years in the West has resulted in some problems, three primary problems. The Forgotten Kingdom, the Discipleship Dilemma, and the Formation Gap. Now, This entire season is focused on that third problem, the Formation Gap. The point of discipleship is that we become more like Jesus from our heart outwards. We've explored the fact that human beings require five things in order for that to happen. Intensive time, specific habits, intentional community, appropriate intimacy, and repetitious and increasingly complex instruction. And we're now rounding the corner on our exploration of community, that third key element. We'll spend a few more weeks digging into community, and then we're going to head into an overview of intimacy and then instruction. We'll wrap up Season 3 by providing some really tangible, very cool, very practical definitions and guides on how to form and facilitate what we view to be the solution to the formation gap, the Immersive Community of Formation, or the ICF. In fact, an ICF is actually a solution to all three primary problems. I've mentioned that the Soil and Roots community continues to grow, and interest in addressing the three primary problems continues to grow with it. A while back, some friends of mine came alongside, and we decided to form a think tank of sorts to debate and discuss and prayerfully drive the Soil and Roots effort forward. We call this think tank the greenhouse, the place where ideas of light are cultivated and grown. We all gathered recently for a weekend retreat, and we spent a lot of time exploring and praying and adding some definition to these ICFs. But I realized that at one point, we were all responding to this novel, new concept of an ICF the way that human beings respond to pretty much anything that seems new. We immediately try to associate something new with something with which we're already familiar. So, for example, a friend of ours has a weekly family night, and his rather large clan gets together for dinner and to get caught up with each other. Sounds awesome. And someone in the greenhouse asked if that is an ICF. And Kyle has two very close friends and they talk separately on a regular basis. Often the conversation gets very deep and may include things like confession, spiritual matters, and giving counsel. So Kyle asked if that sort of friendship is an ICF. 
Another friend of the greenhouse goes on an annual mission trip with the same group of people, and that tends to be highly formative because they're serving together in a different country and are being discipled through the experience of serving. So the greenhouse asked if that annual trip is an ICF. Someone brought up Sunday school or community groups and small groups and Bible studies. Aren't those all examples of ICFs? Well, they're all fantastic gatherings of people, and they can certainly all be formative. But in most cases, none of those would actually qualify as an ICF. Remember, the ICF exists as a specific community in a specific time. The three primary problems in the West have not been primary problems for every generation. Some generations in the past have had a very clear understanding of the kingdom. Not every generation has faced the discipleship dilemma. The early church had a clear understanding that the point of apprenticing with Jesus was to become more like Jesus. And we may be one of the few generations that's ever faced the formation gap. Remember, much of human history had a very different unconscious assumption about community. Growing up and depending on a community larger than just one family was not a luxury like it is for many of us today. In many cases, it was a necessity, certainly assumed way of life. So no, ICFs are not the same thing as our worship service or community group our deep friendships or even our family nights. Those are all fantastic things. Let's keep doing them. And it's a very, very human, very natural thing to place this new term, ICF, in context with something with which we're already familiar. So remember, the purpose and function of an ICF is for this period of time and is specific to solving the three primary problems currently facing the West. So let's make some definitions. An ICF is best described by these three things. Teaching and living the kingdom, becoming more like Jesus as we explore our own hearts, and doing so in intentional five-element communities. I'll say it again. An ICF is defined by teaching and living the kingdom, becoming more like Jesus as we explore our own hearts, and doing so in intentional five-element communities. So if your church service or Sunday school or your family or your Bible study is defined by these three things, it's probably an ICF. But if not, it's not. Let's break down these three definitions a bit more. Last episode, Kyle asked what teaching and living the kingdom in an ICF looks like. Over at the Colson Center, Michael Craven wrote a great article on the kingdom, and this is what he says. Quote, The gospel, or the good news, cannot be fully understood and applied apart from the kingdom of God. Once properly connected to the kingdom, we can then understand and recover the full scope and meaning of the gospel. The fact is, we think we understand the gospel in America, but the evidence overwhelmingly suggests that most of us simply do not understand this most fundamental aspect of the Christian faith. In a tragic turn of events that began in the 19th century with the rise of revivalism, the gospel of the kingdom has suffered a gradual reduction to merely the gospel a term meant to emphasize only the personal plan of salvation. This reduction stripped the gospel of its cosmic dimensions, which transcend one's personal salvation to include the whole of God's redemptive mission in the world, in which he is making all things new through Christ. George Hunsberger makes this point, quote, This separation has made salvation a private event by dividing my personal salvation from the advent of God's healing reign over the whole world, end quote. In the wake of this reduction, the proclamation of the church went from repent, receive Christ, and enter the kingdom of God to invite Jesus into your life. The great fallacy is that we do not invite Jesus into our life. He is inviting us into his, his purpose, 
his work, his kingdom. In essence, the church bears witness to the inbreaking reign of God and serves as the instrument by which God is making everything sad come untrue. There's an optimism that should naturally flow from the realization that our God reigns. Sadly, this optimism, in Craven's opinion, is largely absent from the evangelical church in America. Many Christians seem to live and think as if Christ has been overcome by the world rather than vice versa, or that the gates of hell do indeed prevail against the church today. Perhaps by recovering the biblical mission of the church as participation in God's unrelenting reign, we can once again be a people who live as more than those who seem to be barely surviving. Comments from Michael Craven. If he's right, and I think he is, there is a present urgent, even dire need to recover and teach the gospel of the kingdom. So teaching the kingdom must be the context, the umbrella, the environment in which ICFs form and grow. In fact, ICFs need to be saturated in the gospel of the kingdom. Proper discipleship can't happen without it. Given that so many churches and Bible studies and community groups and friendships fail to understand or teach the kingdom, we can see why immersing ourselves in the teaching of the kingdom is so essential. And as we've discussed here, the downstream impacts of the forgotten kingdom are harmful and damaging to both the church and the culture. Without the kingdom, Christians assume fragmented, disintegrated lives. We tend to retreat from six of the seven mountains of culture instead of engaging and influencing them for our king. We buy the lie that anything secular actually exists. And Christian fatalism has become a dominant, unconscious idea in the West, which further drives Christians from loving their neighbor well. Lack of community, event-driven Christianity, the rise of increasingly large and impersonal Christian institutions, the consolidation of authority and power, all these can be traced back to reducing and forgetting the kingdom. And as Kyle and I talked about last episode, we have less and less incentive to become like Jesus if Craven is right, that many Christians unconsciously assume the world is overcoming Jesus instead of the other way around. We need to be like the sons of Issachar and understand the times in which we live. The antidote to the forgotten kingdom is to recapture and teach the kingdom, tenaciously, repetitively. That's why it's a central tenet of an ICF. We can't have ICFs without it. Okay, on to the discipleship dilemma. Why is spiritual formation essential to an ICF? Why is it a defining characteristic? Well, the lack of genuine discipleship in the West is driven by the forgotten kingdom, and it starts with a shallow and incomplete understanding of evangelism. Modern evangelism has become so reduced and small, we shouldn't wonder why we don't see a deeper desire and a thirst for living holier lives as we become more like Jesus. Over and over again, we're told by the televangelists that we simply need to pray a prayer and accept Jesus into our hearts with some vague notion that we're sinners in need of saving. Recently, I was in a church that regularly preaches a reduced gospel, yet considers itself highly evangelistic. They regularly report on the number of people who have made a, quote, commitment to Jesus, even though it works the other way around. Their gospel presentation didn't mention repentance, that a hallmark of following Jesus is hating our sin and fleeing from it, that the Christians should be characterized by an increasing love for God and others in creation and an increasingly holy life. Modern evangelism often reduces the gospel to a sales pitch, but it's a pitch that doesn't even include the proper terms of the exchange. William Abraham wrote a book called The Logic of Evangelism, in which he patiently evaluates modern evangelism, and he concludes that the New Testament church probably wouldn't even recognize the common drive-by evangelism of today, where a 
a reduced version of the gospel is often proclaimed at some megachurch or a large event by a preacher we never even meet. He says, quote, Continuing to define evangelism as proclamation alone involves a radical transformation of the practice of evangelism, lifting it out of its original setting and landing it in the middle of the 20th century church as we know it in the West. In the early church, one could be relatively sure that the verbal proclamation of the gospel would be intimately linked to the Christian community and to the other ministries of the church that are essential to the rebirth and growth of the new believer. For the early Christians, it would have been unthinkable to have evangelism without community and community without evangelism, end quote. Abraham argues that evangelism is not just the proclamation of the gospel, and he argues for the gospel of the kingdom. Evangelism is the initiation into the kingdom. And that moderate evangelism, which tends to claim it fulfills the Great Commission, can't possibly be fulfilling the Great Commission, because the Great Commission itself inherently involves things like being baptized into a community, and teaching, and obedience, and committed relationships. Now, additionally, we're up against bad ideas of anthropology, that human beings are formed simply by receiving instruction, information. That if we just agree to the correct belief system or apologetics, we're good to go. But the core of the human being is the heart, the spirit. And our hearts are not formed only through instruction. Church leaders sometimes claim that information plus application equals transformation. That if we just receive the right information and do what it says, we'll be transformed. Well, human beings are not so easily formed. Information is necessary. Relationship is central. This is why our stories are so important. Becoming like Jesus means we know him personally and his story, and we dig into our own hearts to better understand our stories. So when ICF is characterized by an intentional effort to get to know Jesus and our own hearts, because they're interconnected. And we do this in a committed group. And when we do that, we learn the hearts of others. That's true formative community. So ICFs intentionally spend time exploring the hearts and stories of everyone in the room. It's part of the rhythm of the group. All right, in the formation gap, ICFs are five-element gatherings. We embrace meaningful time together. We practice various spiritual habits. We intentionally become a primary sitcom-like community together, and we form trusted, transparent relationships, and we engage in repetitious and increasingly complex instruction over time. Well, let's talk about time for a moment. <laughs> The Greenhouse is working on solidifying some materials for you that we'll put out by the end of the season. The current model we're working on recommends that an ICF is a group of, say, 5 to 12 people who get together twice a week for 90 minutes each. The first weekly gathering focuses on teaching and living the kingdom. The second weekly gathering focuses on spiritual habits and story and what we might call soul care, simply sharing how our lives with God are going. And when I share that Soil and Roots is recommending getting together twice a week, there may be some mental objections being raised. Many people sitting in churches may immediately express concern about the time commitment. And it's here that we find the conflict between the typical Western lifestyle and what genuine discipleship actually requires of us. Many Christians sitting in pews won't commit to getting together once a week, much less twice a week. To which we should simply reply, that's okay, let us know if you change your mind. This gets to one of the central themes of the discipleship dilemma. We have virtually no expectation to be discipled, nor do we expect to put very much time and effort into becoming one. 
But what if your seven-year-old daughter begins to show some real gymnastic talent and she decides she wants to become an Olympian? Would you expect that she would be in the gym at least twice a week for 90 minutes? Probably. Most serious gymnasts live at the gym. How about a marriage? That's a formative relationship. Would we expect a marriage to be healthy and thriving if a husband and wife agree to get together twice a week for 90 minutes? Sounds like we might need even more time than that. And what if you're an alcoholic who deeply desires to conquer your addiction? Would you make time for one AA meeting a week? How about two? How about eight? Americans spend two hours and 31 minutes on social media every day. On average, we spend over four hours a day watching television. You get the point. Remember, time is almost never the actual issue. Time is one of our eight indicators. It's a result, not a cause. How we use time is an indicator of a deeper reality. Anyone who desires anything makes the time to fulfill that desire. So forming and committing to ICFs is not really about time. It's about desire. The reality is that anyone who desperately wants Jesus and wants to become more like him and will make the time if they resonate with the three primary problems and they long for this type of community. Remember, most of us have created types of immersive communities before. We've done it for our lovers and for our kids, for our education, certainly for our careers. Also, we're purposely trying to recover a primary community that has largely been lost in modern times. In generations past, we spent far more time with our primary community because we live with them, and we ate with them, and we work with them, and we worshiped with them. Today, we have to work a little harder to create time together. In effect, we get together frequently in ICFs to overcome the lonely, fragmented, disintegrated lifestyles that's become so common. I'm meeting with one local pastor who's testing getting small groups together just once a week for some discipleship. He confessed the church is having difficulty getting people to commit to that. That brings up an interesting thought. Perhaps we're going to find more people longing for this type of community outside of church institutions than inside them. If modern Christianity has so promoted the unconscious idea that attending a weekly service sort of checks the discipleship box, it wouldn't surprise me to find some indifference from people in institutional congregations and a greater willingness from the disenfranchised, the lonely, and those with lingering doubts that keep them from darkening a door of a church. That'll be interesting to follow. So to review, an ICF is defined by three things specific to solving the three primary problems. It's saturated in the teaching of the kingdom and how to live in it. Its focus is on becoming more like Jesus as we explore both his heart and ours. And it's a five-element group. It intentionally embraces time, habit, community, intimacy, and instruction. A few episodes ago, we noted that the very first ICF was Jesus and his 12 disciples and the women who traveled and ministered with them. There's another early ICF that's very much worth exploring that we should seek to emulate and may distinguish ICFs further from other types of Christian gatherings. It's the very first community that formed after the arrival of the Holy Spirit, and we find it beautifully described in Acts 2, 42-47. Now keep in mind, about 3,000 people had just entered the kingdom, so this isn't a particularly small gathering, though it does appear they were meeting in small groups pretty quickly. So here's the passage. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. 
day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now we see all five elements powerfully portrayed here, as well as a sense of being saturated in relevant teaching and powerful spiritual formation. So first we see a deep group commitment to God and to each other. Luke tells us the people were continually devoting themselves to four things, teaching, fellowship, eating, and prayer. We find four of the five key elements just here, time, habit, community, and instruction, just in this one passage. Then we see a wonderful picture of something God has stressed to his people all the way back to ancient Israel. God's communities are to be characterized by radical generosity. ICFs treat money differently than the world does, and perhaps even differently than some church institutions. We don't see a discussion here of a 10% tithe, and whether it's on gross or net, or budgets, or tax-deductible giving, or retirement planning, or financial security. Those may all be worthy topics, but what we see here is a community sacrificially taking care of each other's needs. Acts 2 is not an advertisement for socialism, which is government-compelled wealth redistribution. This is radical generosity in response to radical generosity. God has so generously given to us, the early church's hearts responded in kind, out of love and concern for neighbor. No legalism, no requirements, no boundaries, but plenty of sacrifice without concern for future security. So what might radical generosity look like in an ICF today? Well, though there are very few people who legitimately couldn't make the time for an ICF if they desired it, one group who may truly not have the time is single moms. Imagine a mother of three kids working two or three jobs just to pay rent and feed her kids. She desires to become more like Jesus in a genuine close community, but her time is legitimately locked up working, caring for her children. Now, what if her ICF regularly took up a collection and gave her the money so that she could quit one of her jobs? What if they sold their property and possessions and shared them with her so that she could be discipled in community? What if they paid for babysitting during their gatherings so she didn't have to worry about her children? Then Luke shares another beautiful characteristic of these early ICFs, gladness and sincerity of heart. Here we see our fourth key element, intimacy, transparency. The word sincerity literally means without cracks. One Bible definition defines it as the personal quality of living life from a pure motive without deceit. It's associated with words like truth, genuineness, godliness, preaching the gospel sincerely. So sincerity of heart means that their very core, their hearts, their roots, their spirits were genuine, open, truthful. Taken together, Acts 2, 42 to 47 is really a striking passage of scripture, and it beautifully sums up what should characterize a five-element community. All right, so let's put all of this together. Is what we're describing as an ICF the same thing as corporate worship or a Bible study or a family or a gathering or a community group? It could be, but it may not. Because an ICF exists to solve the three primary problems. It's saturated in the teaching of the kingdom and how to live in it. Its focus is on becoming more like Jesus as we explore both his heart and ours. And it's a five-element gathering. It intentionally embraces time, habit, physical presence, intimacy, and instruction. And it may also be characterized by a radical, if not nonsensical, generosity of money and time and resources and practical help. 
Now, we might be tempted to look at Acts 2 and claim that that community was unique in all of church history. After all, the Holy Spirit had just arrived, the kingdom had just been incepted, and Luke is powerfully portraying the birth of a brand new reality. And after Stephen's martyrdom a few chapters later, most of the communities fled into other areas, and it's painfully evident from Paul's letters that not every community got off to the best start. But a pastor friend of mine were chatting about ICFs, and he suggested I read a book called The Class Meeting. Now, the author, Kevin Watson, has assessed the small group movement in the West today and concluded there are three types of small groups. The fellowship group, the informational group, and the transformational group. So fellowship groups get together to hang out, informational groups get together to study curricula, and transformational groups get together to be formed. Watson believes the majority of small groups today are informational, and as you might suspect, I agree. Now, the first part of his book traces the origins of transformational small groups in the early Methodist church a few hundred years ago. These groups were called class meetings. These groups were very simple. Quote, classes were intended to have between 7 and 12 members in them. Women and men often, though not always, met together in the same class. These groups were also led by both women and men. Classes were divided primarily by geographic location. In other words, you would have attended a class meeting with the Methodists in your neighborhood, end quote. And the format was simple. Prayer, a few hymns and songs, and then a simple question. How is it with your soul? A modern version of this question might be, how is your life with God? So during this weekly class meeting, there was no Bible study, no curricula, no homework. Watson writes, quote, The phrase that best captures what the Methodists believed was so important about the class meeting was watching over one another in love. Early Methodists were asked to invite others into their lives and to be willing to enter deeply into the lives of other people so that together they would grow in grace. They were committed to the idea that the Christian life is a journey of growth in grace or sanctification. And they believed that they needed one another in order to persevere on the journey. End quote. John Wesley believed the midweek class meeting was essential to Methodism and the growth of the church universal. It certainly seemed essential. Quote, in 1776, Methodists accounted for 2.5% of religious adherents in the colonies, the second smallest of the major denominations at the time. By 1850, Methodists comprised 34.2% of religious adherents in the U.S., which was 14% more than the next largest group. And through the period of this growth, every Methodist was expected to participate in a weekly class meeting. End quote. Now, Watson noted that despite John Wesley's insistence that the class meeting be preserved, they did in fact eventually die out, primarily due to two factors, the growing prosperity of Methodists and the rise of Sunday school. Interesting. Both of those may be topics for another time, but Watson is right now working to rekindle the class meeting in his own denomination. So as we provide some definitions about ICS to you by the end of this season, you'll see some elements of the class meeting and what we're suggesting. The class meeting doesn't solve all of the three primary problems, but it does speak really well to the discipleship dilemma and the human need for a primary committed community. And I think Watson proves that close committed primary communities are not just something from the book of Acts. Like you, I often hear prayers and petitions for revival in the West. We pray that the Holy Spirit comes and renews our hearts and renews our culture. We tend to assume this revival will happen through some sort of explosion in the modern idea of evangelism or extended spiritual experiences like we've seen on some college campuses, perhaps. 
but perhaps we might look at revival a bit differently. If William Abraham is correct and that evangelism is more than the proclamation of a reduced version of the gospel, and Kevin Watson is correct in that Christianity has grown rapidly in the past through small groups looking over one another in love, we might consider their perspectives. What if we formed small communities that practiced initiating people into the kingdom versus just reciting a prayer and intellectually agreeing to some assertions? What if we formed small five-element communities who focused on spiritual formation by looking over one another in love? What if revival happens through committed Christians living the kingdom life in small primary communities, practicing radical generosity while journeying with one another to become more like Jesus? Just something to think about. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, share the podcast and give it a rating. And don't forget all the episodes are transcribed on the blog so you can read them at your leisure. For more information, you can check out the website at soilandroots.org. And as always, you can email me at fish at soilandroots.org. We'll see you next time.